Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio are Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray from our political staff and also Irish Times columnist Gerard Howland. You're all very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, We have two items on the agenda this week. A little bit later, we're going to be looking at the ongoing debate uh, in the Shannad over the Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill. But first, last Sunday, President Michael D. Higgins gave an interview to the Business Post newspaper in which he made a number of comments about the Consultative Forum on Irish International Security Policy, which has been set up by the government and is going to hold public sessions in Dublin, Cork and Galway over the next while. The interview, I think it is fair to say, has stirred up a lot of controversy. An editorial in this morning's Irish Times says the question is not whether the president is right, it is whether he should have spoken at all. I suppose, first of all, we should figure out what did he say, Jen? Yeah, so this was an interview President Higgins gave to the Business Post on Sunday. Um, It was ahead of these consultative forums that are being held later this week in Dublin, Cork and Galway, which are looking at the issues of neutrality, the triple lock, Ireland's uh, foreign policy, Ireland's defence policy, all of that up for public debate. Um, And the comments he made basically, I think the first thing was that he said the most dangerous place to be in when you are talking about foreign policy is in a drift. And he said he would define um, our, our current foreign policy as being in a drift. Um, He also criticised the makeup of the panels that will uh, take part in this forum, saying they include the admirals, the generals, the air force and the rest of it, as well as the formerly neutral countries who are now joining NATO. Um, One of the comments that got him in particular trouble was around the chair of the former uh, of the forum, Louise Richardson. He basically said she had, you know, a DBE, David British Empire, and that was grand, but he could have chosen a couple of names or thought up a couple of other names himself. And, you know, the insinuation is, is, is quite clear there. Those comments, I think, got him in particular trouble because when you're talking about policy or when you're talking about, um, you know, uh, Ireland's neutrality status or militarisation or anything like that, you're tackling the ball. Whereas people thought here that he was tackling the player and that personalising it in that way was unfair. And then, of course, the focus shift to Louise Richardson. What was she going to say? Was she going to continue in the role? Uh, did she feel undermined? Did the Taoiseach still back her? Did the Thonish still back her? Um, they kind of avoided answering those questions. But in the end, Michael D. Higgins came out and apologised. I think um, it, it was said that he it was a throwaway comment in the course of uh, of an interview. It's kind of rare for him to apologise. Um, and, and that's kind of where we were landed at the start of the week. And interesting to see in the doll yesterday. I was interested to see what will Micheál Martin, what will Leo Varadkar say in response, but they said nothing, really. They said, oh, it's a long-standing tradition, basically, not to criticise the presidency, which is funny. Um, and that, yeah, that's a two-way tradition, isn't it? It only seems tradition. to be working one way these, these days. For a long time, it's only been working one way. I mean, Michael D will be Michael D, but we can get into that a bit later if you want. Jared, you were very critical of the president in a, in a column in yesterday's Irish Times. Yes, and I think the lacerating remarks about generals, admirals and Professor Richardson are a sideshow because being rude is not unconstitutional. Uh, what is unconstitutional is the president preempting the foreign policy of the state. 
the position of the government abroad by remarks which uh, were lacerating in tone, but fundamentally inappropriate and improper constitutionally. I mean, one article of the Constitution requires that the president must receive the permission of the government to travel abroad. And that is so that the elected executive elected by us, the people, uh, can determine the government's foreign policy position at any given time. The president can't just pop up here or there. And a continuation of the sense of that has always been understood, and I clearly understand it now, is that foreign policy uh, is in the hands of the elected government because it is in the hands of us, the people, uh, not the president, who does not have a mandate on, on these issues. And uh, it's not as good enough to say Michael D would be Michael D. Michael D took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and he did not uphold the Constitution on Sunday. Is it possible that the drafters of the 1937 Constitution didn't envisage the very different environment in which the presidency, as, as it has developed, particularly since 1990 and the election of Mary Robinson, I think, takes advantage of the, the, the presidency as a platform to advance certain issues? Maybe not as directly contrary to government policy as this one, but um, in other words, you know, can you point, apart from extrapolating as you just mm. did, to a way in which what the president did was actually you know, in contravention of the Constitution. Well, I believe it was in, in contravention of the constitutional because the reality is that, for example, in 2022, when he said he thought there was time for a ceasefire in terms of Ukraine on St. Patrick's Day, a day of the year in which Ireland is centre stage globally, he did preempt the elected the elected government in, in that regard on that day, and a highly sensitive issue. He did preempt the elected government on, on Sunday in ways that have got traction. Uh, internationally. And that is not just upsetting the government, which is not here and there. It's lots of people's job to upset the government, including ours, perhaps. Uh, but his job is to uphold the Constitution. And for him to do that effectively, he must be above politics. Because to exercise the powers that are explicitly given him in the Constitution, to refer bills, including legislation, perhaps on security policy in the future, uh, to the Supreme Court for examination, he must be seen that he is not prejudiced or biased in advance. To, for example, deny a Taoiseach uh, who has lost the majority of dissolution in circumstances where this could be a controversial issue, he must be clearly above the fray. So in going into the trenches, uh, by leaving the higher ground that is constitutionally his, he undermines the function of the office that he is given under the constitution. So it's, it applies at both ends of the spectrum. He's burning the candle at both ends here. To what extent does this government and I think the two other governments that have been in power, Pat, since, since Michael D became president, do they um, share some of the blame of this because it seems to me that when instances of this has, have happened in the past, perhaps not quite as, as seriously, they've tended to just sigh, raise their eyebrows and want to move on as quickly as possible. Yeah, I suppose it's a mixture of sighing, raising their eyebrows, people give out about him in private, also say, well, look, it's just Michael D being Michael D. Uh, but I think in previous instances, there was very often, such as when he was an outspoken critic of austerity uh, in the period after the financial crash. And we, we wrote quite a lot uh, about it at the time. But it was available, I think, to Michael D at that stage and certainly to his supporters to say, you know, this is not a direct criticism of a government policy. This is a critique of a pan-European uh, movement which is driven by unelected bureaucrats. And in to be fair, European it was mostly Commission. couched that way. 
And as it, I recall. Uh, yes, it was. It was very carefully couched that way because the president didn't wish to cross the line into, into criticising government policy. And it seems to me that he has very clearly crossed that line now. And it is, I mean, you, you can argue that he is right. And I've spoken to people in, uh, in, in Leinster House who believe that he is right, both in his criticism of, the, uh, of the, the construction of the panels in the forum that is to come and on the general theme of neutrality. And there's lots of people who believe that the president, uh, that the president is right. But what seems to me is, is inarguable is that this hasn't been done before, that this is a crossing of the line into political debate by a direct criticism of government policy that no president has done, certainly not as explicitly uh, as uh, as this before, the reaction in government, I think, is very much to uh, not not to react. And as Jen says, both Tishik and the Tonishta have studiously avoided making uh, making comments on it. Though it was noticeable that Michal Martin was straight back. Uh, out on Sunday at lunchtime with a statement that had clearly been some time in the preparation, uh, not directly addressing the president, but certainly addressing the criticisms uh, that uh, that he has made. So it seems to me the government is not for backing down on this, but nor does it wish to get into a public row with the president, not just because that leads us down to you a know, mur- murky concept. I was, I was trying to avoid... <laughs> I was trying to avoid the use of the term, but as usual, you ju- you jumped in to preempt uh, preempt me. But actually, I think there's also a political there's a political calculation which has always been there that Michael D is a lot more popular than they are. So you referred to this, uh, Jared, in your in your column as I think something like the revenge of uh, of Paddy Donegan. Um, our older listeners will recall that that was a constitutional crisis. I think mm. it's fair to say back in the 1970s when when um, the then minister uh, criticised uh, the then president, Carol O'Dolly, and ended up because uh, the minister was defended by the Taoiseach of the Daily in Cosgrave, the president felt he had no option but to resign. And in a way, this is a reversed version of that, isn't it? In that it's people stepping outside the constitutional guardrails. It, it is. A because pro- the criti- Sorry, just to say, mm. just for our listeners, just so they know, the criticism was because Carol O'Dolly had exercised his is constitutional right to re- refer a piece of legislation for consideration by the Supreme Court. Yeah. Which was an Emergency Powers Act in the context of the assassination of the British uh, ambassador to Ireland. Shocking events. Uh, we had the terrorism um, uh, and the IRA campaign was at its height and the government took a political view that strong action needed to be taken in order to combat that. Uh, O'Dolly, a former Supreme Court judge, took the view that this possibly infringe civil liberties, that it deserved to be examined by the Supreme Court for its constitutionality and after consulting the Council of State did just that. Donegan, the Minister of Defence, bearing in mind the President as Commander-in-Chief in an army barracks, described him as a thundering disgrace. Now, there are theories that the actual words may have been slightly... In, in the Begrudger's Guide to Irish Politics, uh, Brandon O'Hare quoted the minister um, as saying, a thundering fucking disgrace. Well, so we can you... say that now, because we've moved on in well, media circles. I, well, I mean, obviously, I don't do it without due deliberation. So this was the Minister of Defence on the Commander-in-Chief and President exercising his, his constitutional role. Uh, Liam Cosgrave, the Taoiseach, refused to dismiss Donegan and O'Dolly took the view to protect the prerogative of the Office of President. He would resign. Foundational moment in development of the Irish presidency. And it would seem to me President Higgins, as Commander-in-Chief, reversed that dynamic on Sunday. This sounds very serious, John. Do you agree it's as serious as that? 
No, um, I'm going to go against the grain here. I mean, yes, he's the supreme commander of the defence forces, but I don't think in reality. Well, not really. He but doesn't just, have yeah, any yeah. actual <laughs> power uh, in 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 that regard. I, um, to be honest with you, I think actually that when you look at the constitution or the constitution in, in as far as the powers of the president, there are a lot of limitations, I think, around what a president can do. Um, and that's all very clear, very clearly laid out. I don't think there are that many limitations around what a president can say. Um, obviously, if a president wants to make an address to the Oireachtas or an address to nation, of course, they need um, approval of the government. But in terms of the actual criticisms or comments that they can make, there is a lot of disagreement about how far they can go. And I feel like actually, if you look at the comments that he made, he was talking about almost a lack of policy in relation to foreign policy, a drift in policy. But that's still a criticism of policy, I guess, but you could look at it the other way, you know, and saying that he's more highlighting an, ab- an absence of something, although I do agree that the, the comments I, on Louise Richardson and perhaps make up some of the form, and he's apologised for those. I, I, on Sunday, I did think, well, that is troublesome. The rest of it, not really. And I actually think that, because I was on Sunday, working on Sunday, and I had to ring around a lot of people in government, I detected, honestly, some glee. Honestly, I did. People kind of waiting in the long grass saying, all right, okay, let's sharpen the knives. People who have been just dying to get back at President Higgins, probably because of comments that he made before. Um, so is this building up then? You know, is yeah. this relationship worsening and worsening over the whatever we've had 10 years more uh, of, of of the presidency now between um, the executive? Oh, yeah, there's been the a number. There's been a number of uh, occasions where he uh, spoke um, and got people in government felt he crossed the line. A particular low point, I think, was when he made comments about housing and about the fact it was a crisis. And um, I think he was very strong on that. And I remember at the time working on that story and people in government privately saying, yeah, they were fuming, you know. And I think this time around, I didn't really have any problem in getting people to comment on the record. There's a lot of people who didn't want to comment off, you know, who spoke to me off the record. And I genuinely think that it's it's also an easy fig leaf for the government because they can, as soon as he says something controversial, they can turn around and say, yes, but he's not allowed to say that. He shouldn't be saying that he crossed the lines. You focus on that aspect of it rather than what he's actually saying. I think that's a handy trick for the government to have. And honestly, in relation to the role of the president, if we're saying that this, these are the constitutional limits, this is what he is and isn't allowed to say, maybe we need to have a rethink of it. Maybe we actually need to think about what we actually want from a president. What do we want from a role of president? Because one of the criticisms I hear is, what does president actually do? What is the relevance? And if you're going to have a presidential election where you ask all of the candidates, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What are your opinions on blah, blah, blah? And then elect them and then say, actually, you're not allowed to say any of that. It's completely irrelevant. Well, what's the point of that? So but that would be my take. it's not an executive. Yeah. It's not an executive know, presidency. Yeah. Its powers are very, very clearly constrained in the Constitution. It's, it's, it's a role, I think, much more, much closer to kind of an elected constitutional monarch rather than uh, rather than an executive pr- uh, president. Well, well then, and you can argue, you, you, you know, as I said earlier, you, you, you can argue that those powers should be expanded mm-hmm. or that it might be a good thing to have a different role for the president. But what you can't say, it seems to me, is that this isn't a departure from the political and constitutional norms that have always been observed by both president and, uh, and government. And there's very good reasons for not having two centres of political power within the country. And that's the rationale behind the the, the design of the constitution. Because if you've got two centres of political power, what happens when they disagree? Well, isn't it the case, Jared, that, that, you know, that the world has changed? That for the first 50 years or so after mm. the 1937 constitution, the office was largely occupied by 
by gentlemen of a certain age who had had respected careers in politics uh, or the law and they kept their heads down and maybe played a fair bit of golf and you didn't really hear Mm -hmm. or see that much for them. And that process started to change in Ireland with the election of Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese. Well, you're you're wrong there. Okay, tell me why. Um, First of all, President O'Dolly predated President Robinson by some time. And his intervention was the foundation, I think, of uh, a strongly independent presidency constitutionally. Secondly, in relation to President Hillary, uh, he refused to take an intervention from his former cabinet colleagues, uh, principally the late Brian Lenahan Sr. in 81-82, in consequence of where Taoiseach lost majority uh, and stood up for the prerogative of the president. But I think if you'd heard the end of my sentence, you Sorry. might have agreed that I wasn't <laughs> wrong, which was the point I was making was not that they were exercising in a, you know, in a strong mm. way their constitutional rights as enumerated in, in, in the constitution itself, but that a different kind of presidency emerged, which was more performative, which was more rhetorical, which was more symbolic and which was more public facing. And then we saw that in the types of electoral contests, and we didn't always have mm. an electoral contest previously at all, as we know, but in the types of electoral contests that we had in the 90s and the noughties and the teens is we elected those sorts of presidents and they 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 had a different, more performative kind of a role. And that may become more likely in the future because politics more broadly is changing and, and becoming more performative. But, and neither President O'Dolly or President Hillary were directly elected. Uh, they were unopposed Absolutely. candidates. Absolutely. And that definitely, mm. I suppose, limited them. But also the resources in Orison Neutron before President uh, Robinson were absolutely minimal. You couldn't have a performance of presidency because you hardly had the sugar to make and the milk to make the tea for I the my point engagements. Though is that are these problems not likely to arise with this new relatively new reconstruction well, of what the presidency is allowed. Yeah, but, but, and but, particularly but, the kind of people who might in the future, but, you know, media personalities and others be, be elected president. Uh, the, you, know? yeah, you, have you anyone in mind? Um, but, well, uh, anybody around this table. Right here first, Hugh Lennon, uh, the president. Um, well, I think you have to be over 35, so myself and Jen are out. But, um, uh, oh, no, actually, I'm not out. I'm 34. Thanks very much. The pr- president, uh, Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese, both expanded the role of the presidency and both did did things with the role that no president had done before. But they did it in a way that didn't fall foul of the legal and constitutional norms or the precedents that had been previously established. And it seems to me that if someone is going to run for president, and, you know, uh, Michael D. Higgins told Sally Hayden uh, a couple of of months ago in in an interview conducted, I think, in Sierra Leone, that, um, you know, he knew exactly, uh, he says as he as he does quite frequently, that as a political scientist and a sociologist, he is perfectly aware of where the line uh, of where the line for the presidency is, and he's very thought a lot about it, and he's very careful, uh, very careful not to cross it. Very difficult to see how you can square those comments with the um, uh, with the the actions of recent days. I mean, the broad the broader picture again is that internationally, Jared, we see. Things which are regarded as norms, but may not be may not be spelt out in the constitution or the law, being bent uh, or broken by political figures around the world. You just need to look at the United States and the United Kingdom to see that happening and being tested, maybe in a way that they weren't by the you know the good chaps theory of government but that you had previously. Why, this is why the presidency is so important. Uh, the president's role is to protect the state and the citizen in extremis. 
That's ultimately what the president does in Ireland. Is he protects us, the people. He protects our constitution. He protects our law from governments that are inclined to go over, over, overboard or over, over the bounds. And for him to do that appropriately, and it's a world in which these things are more likely to happen in the future than perhaps they were in the past, it is absolutely essential that that president is clearly, utterly and absolutely above the politics and the rows of the day. He's got two years left, John. Mm. There might be some possibility, some might fear just that he'll be saying to himself, I've got two years left, you know, damn the begrudges, I'll do what I want for the, for the last two years. Yeah, this could be just a, a symptom of that. Um, but I, I don't know, I feel like, I'll go back to what I said, I genuinely think that there perhaps should be a rethink about the role of president because if you actually look at, he has, enjoys like a very high popularity amongst the Irish public. And that is another reason why people in government are a little bit reluctant to criticise him as well because I think there's a lot of people in government who feel he's hugely popular with the public. We are not. And that was a big issue during his housing intervention. That's because the government is responsible for things. For sure. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, not even getting yeah. in, I'm not even getting into, into that. And of course you can understand he doesn't have to take any of those decisions or hard decisions or, or, or whatever. But the fact remains that he yeah. is, you know, he is extremely popular. Um, and, you know, maybe we should have a forum beyond a forum on neutrality, a forum on the presidency. And then he can weigh in on that <laughs> afterwards. I look forward to those But doesn't that become hugely difficult if you break down what Pat talked about earlier and you just make that distinction that the president is, I mean, essentially an elected constitutional monarch. Uh, if, if you let him start, or him or her in the future, start wading into matters of day-to-day -day policy, does that not, you know, damage and confuse the process of democratic elected government in Ireland? Potentially, yeah, and potentially very much so, depending on exactly what is said. And yeah, if you look at Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, this style of presidency they had was very much about building bridges. And when you're talking about building bridges, that is, you know, it's not the same thing as what President Higgins is doing, or certainly nowhere near the remarks he made at the weekend. Um, yes, it could potentially, of course, be very damaging. But on the other hand, do we really want a president who sits in Oris and Uchtheron and says nothing? Uh, I don't think maybe, so. Maybe, maybe. Well, personally, I'll speak personally then. I don't see the point of that. I don't see the point of that. Um, particularly, like I said, if you're going to have an election campaign where you're badgering everybody, what do you think of this and what do you think on that? And but I'm you know that point, that though, about you're, you're, I mean, you're dead right about the presidential election campaigns and they have changed massively from, you know, say, 1990 uh, uh, or so. Yeah, look and at Sean have, Gallagher and the, te the televised aspect. A, a kind yeah. of a brutally ruthless interrogation of the character and record of the people who are running for president. In a sort of reality TV format as well. Many They're very much a product of contemporary have, society. Many candidates have wilted underneath that, mm. uh, uh, underneath that scrutiny. You can argue that Michael Lee didn't get quite as much scrutiny as everybody else in, uh, in 2011. That's, that's another... And when he did, he got very testy. That's another, that, that's another argument. But the... the Presidential election campaigns are that brutal interrogation of the character and record of people precisely because they cannot stand on a policy platform. They cannot say, these are my political beliefs, this is, uh, this is what I would do uh, as, as president in policy terms because they have no role in policy terms. And, you know, if we want to change the presidency into something, you know, that interrogates presidents about the policies that they would espouse, then it seems to me we run the risk of running a parallel political system that you have an exec, a semi-executive presidency, and which, any, which either way, you know, you would need constitutional amendments to empower it. Uh, and uh, the elected head, uh, the head of government elected by parliament. And that is a recipe 
for all sorts of And isn't there an added potential problem, Jared, which is that in the world which we live in now in the 21st century, that the, given that the position doesn't have any executive power, that it becomes a great place for somebody to performatively engage in culture wars, which are the kind of things that agitate public discussion and entertainment. I could definitely see a situation in which somebody might 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 exploit that yeah, you know, I mean, at the next election or afterwards. The next president will be inaugurated on the 11th of November 2025. Um, that'll bring us up to 2032. And there is no guarantee that that person uh, wouldn't be minded to do something like that. And it's a fairly shocking spectacle. I mean, we've been very lucky in our presidents, including President Higgins. Um, and that's why I think it's important that he recognise, for the sake of the office, what happened last Sunday and give leadership in correcting that. Uh, because if he this precedent stands, it makes that scenario easier to unfold in the future. This is very much about the future of the office, as well as what was said this week. I think one of the interesting things about this is that all of this, I can imagine, occurred to the president before he made his remarks. I mean, he said his remarks about Louise Richardson were off the cuff or whatever, uh, whatever he says. The president doesn't really get to make off the cuff remarks. And, you know, Michael D. Higgins is not just a political scientist and sociologist. He's a political animal who has been around Irish politics for five decades. He knows this stuff inside out. And I don't think you can reasonably argue that this was an inadvertent crossing of the line. I think it was a very deliberate one. So I think we can assume that he considered these questions beforehand. And I wonder what he thinks has is to be gained by this in the longer term. Does he want to see future presidents expand the role in the way that he has done to enter into the political fray? Does he think maybe, you know, this is a once off and this issue is so important that I, uh, I felt I had to speak out and now I will retreat again behind the line where I will stay and other presidents in the future should well, stay. Well, stay until at least does August. He, does, he, <laughs> does he just like figure, as Jen said, I've got two years left, I'm going to make a bit of noise. I'd like to know. Well, uh, it's the timing as well. Sorry, it's also the timing of it. And a lot of people were suspicious about the timing. It's like, why now? And this actually happens a lot when you're a journalist. You ask someone a question about something that's coming up and they answer in a controversial way and everyone says, mm. this is so suspicious. Often it's not. It's actually just the fact that something is coming up. And I think he knew that these forums were coming up. The interview was probably arranged on the basis of talking about those exact topics. I totally agree with Pat. I say he thought long and hard, like as he does for every interview, about what he said. I probably think he, well, he does regret the comments about Louise Richardson. Um, so I think that that was the context in which it was which it was made. And maybe his aim was to, I don't know, affect a debate within the Dáil about the makeup of those uh, panels on the forum. Because we saw very heated scenes in the Dáil last week where I think it was people before profit were talking about how the makeup of the forum are stacked with people who are pro-NATO. And Michal Martin said, you know, you, you people will put the jackboot on people's necks if you were in, in power, and I think he withdrew that comment. He did, yeah. So it's a heated topic, and neutrality has been for a while, and perhaps that was his way of pushing the debate uh, in a certain direction and setting that agenda for the week, which is exactly what's happened. We're going to touch on another heated uh, subject in a moment, uh, but before we do, and before we take a break, just to remind you that if you want to read Jared Howland's column, or if you'd like to read Pat's thoughts on the subject, I think you were writing on it earlier in the week. Uh, great and tedious uh, As well, and, and many other excellent pieces, you'll need to be a subscriber to the Irish Times. It's very easy to do that. You just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, and there are a range of options available to you, print, digital, one or the other, or indeed both if you're feeling flush. Um, we'll be back after this.
And you're very welcome back. Uh, Jared, Jen and Pat are still here. Now, very interesting uh, debate ongoing in the Shannon, Jen. It's mm. in relation to, as I mentioned at the top of the pod, the criminal justice incitement to violence or hatred or hate offences bill, generally known kind of as the hate crimes bill in, in, in shorthand at the moment. It passed fairly quickly through the doll without too much of a kerfuffle, apart from some objections, I think, from Paul Murphy um, of People Before Profit of, of one particular item which we might touch on. But the, the criticisms are different and it seems to me more forceful in the current debate in the Shannon. I want to have a listen to what uh, Senator Michael McDool, who is, after all, a former Attorney General and former Minister for Justice, had to say. A member of Ankara the Shia Corner can arrest you and uh, detain you and bring you to a, um, a, a, a Garda station where you can be detained under the provisions of the Criminal Justice Act of 1984. And secondly, any citizen can arrest you if he or she believes that you are actually committing an offence under the section. So to create such an offence without actually it being clear to everyone what is or is not constituted by the term hatred is very dangerous indeed. Hatred is something which could mean an awful lot to an awful lot of different people. This bill needs to be amended. It isn't in good shape. It emerged from the on a wave of generalised support. And uh, it has come before us in a state where it can be a charter for freezing genuine free speech and uh, prevent people from articulating unpopular views such as J.K. Rowling's views or whatever uh, they are. She's entitled to express her views and not to be arrested by a citizen or by a guard. And the whole idea of saying, oh, when it comes to court, she'll have all her protections. Going to court to defend your remarks in public and being acquitted is a pretty horrific uh, experience for most people. And most people will take many, many steps to avoid the danger of, of, of being prosecuted and shut their mouths. So that was a pretty forceful intervention from Senator McDool. Um, Jen, is there any sense at all that, that these kind of attacks on the bill, and there's a couple of other elements of it, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment, that they're having any impact on government's position on it? Um, I certainly know that there have been amendments proposed in different stages down through the debate. Um, that have been rejected by government or not been accepted by government from the opposition. I mean, if you look at the bill, if you look at the hate crime legislation or provisions that are currently in place, they, they're from 1989. Um, and they're from a time when the internet was pretty much a glimmer in our eyes, uh, certainly mine because I was one year old. But um, I think actually, if you look at what the bill is going to do, there's kind of two different provisions in it. One is in relation to to hate crimes, in relation to an aggra aggravated offence, and the other side is in relation to actual hate speech. A lot of the debate around this, and there's many different controversial aspects. There's an aspect around gender, gender identity. There's a demonstration test that has proven a bit controversial. And then there's the issue that hate is not defined explicitly within the bill. Um, the reason why the government and Helen McEntee, from what I can see, the reason why they've said hate is not explicitly defined is because they're worried if they put too narrow a definition on it, that if and when, and it, it, you know, it is ultimately a matter for the courts um, to decide one way or the other, um, that basically it would 
it would basically curtail their ability to decide and that it should be left within their power uh, in in the judiciary to decide that. Now, there have been um, a number of people like Dr. Seamus Taylor who have argued that if you did provide a definition, it would actually clear up a lot of the confusion around it. And I would agree with that. Um, and he said it would make, a, he thinks the bill is actually very good. And he formerly worked in the DPP's office, I think in Scotland, in England, specifically in relation to hate crime. So I would listen to what he says. Um, and he said that actually adding a definition onto hate would make a good bill even better. Um, and yeah, this is this is a, a, a major issue has come up. And I, I note as well that in, in, in Michael McDowell's contribution, he talked about J.K. Rowling. I think the message that the government are trying to get across is that this will not be covered in this bill. That actually, if you go online and you express an opinion, let's say it's about same-sex marriage, let's say it's about transgender laws, you are not going to be within the remit of this bill. That actually... It would take you. It would take a lot to stray into a criminal territory, um, and then there's another interesting aspect around the definition of hate. And Pat actually wrote about this before, and that's that the guards have a much broader definition of hate, um, and they use this on the basis of this um, thing called the McPherson test, which, which Pat wrote about before, which is really interesting. Yeah, I well, might, might, might ask Pat to, yeah. to explain that. Yeah. In simple terms, um, what it means that the definition used by the uh, uh, by the guards for hate crime and, and and let us be clear there is no such thing in Irish law at present as as a hate crime although the guards talk about hate crimes and record what they uh, believe to be uh, to be hate crimes are hate incidents right but there is no such thing uh, in Irish law what this bill proposes to do is to introduce the idea of hate as an aggravating uh, element in things that are already crimes. Such as assaults. Such as assaults, such, yeah. as, uh, such as murders, etc., etc., right? That's distinct from the hate speech element uh, of, uh, of this bill. But the guards currently define a hate crime as, uh, as per the definition of the, uh, a subjective definition on the part of the victim. Of the hate crime, so if I uh, uh, if I assault you, Hugh, God forbid, if I assault you, and you feel that my assault of you is motivated by hatred of you under one of those protected characteristics, I can uh, then, in the guards' view, that is a hate crime. Now that is not currently the legal uh, the legal definition, but that's the way the guards work it. In this proposed uh, legislation, Jen referenced the demonstration test. And for there to be a hate crime, there will have to be a demonstration of that hatred, such as the use of racial epithets or reference made either by verbally or by demonstration to hatred on my part towards you because, because of one of the protected sexual orientation or religious protected belief characteristics. Or okay, yeah. so I could um, uh, I, I could be guilty of a hate crime for assaulting you because uh, because you were a Hindu, uh, uh, but not because uh, but because I was an Irish Times journalist. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and so the, I think the bill attempts to, to clear that. What would be interesting to do is is watch the guards if this bill becomes law in something like its current terms, then the Garda will have to narrow its definition 
of uh, of what a hate crime is. A frequent critique from the civil liberties perspective of of this sort of legislation, Jared, is and and I think it's it's implicit in what we heard from Michael McDougal there, is is that it has a chilling effect that goes beyond its actual application of somebody being convicted of something in in a court of law. And it, it, it's a common refrain in authoritarian regimes that you have nothing to be afraid of if you haven't done anything wrong in the view of those regimes. And there is a touch of that, isn't there, in, in terms of the, the, the vagueness of the definitions means that they can have this creep out into society. That's there is, and this is the classic conundrum of trying to legislate for morality. On the one hand, I, just in my own lived life, I live in the North Inner City, I have a definite sense that hate is on the increase. Uh, I, I just believe that is just my day-to-day -day experience, that it's real, it's out there, it is not just offensive, but it's dangerous, it's inhibiting in all sorts of ways of people who it is targeted towards. In what and way does that manifest itself? Well, r racial abuse on the streets, which I've heard uh, and, and seen, uh, a particular I incident on a bus, that the bus driver was the object of racial abuse. Um, there was a, a, a Chinese gentleman who got racial abuse. This is all in my personal ex experience in, in, in the last few months. So uh, it, it's out there. So I think the intent of the legislation is right. We live in changed times where we are multicultural, where we have an internet, we have all these channels so that people can fire off missiles, you know, apparently safely from, you know, their phone or whatever, as, as well as do it face-to-face -face on the street and uh, double down on physical attacks because they're racial or homophobic or, 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 or whatever. Um, is there a double-edged sword here? Of course, absolutely. And, and we should be very much aware of this. I mean, this goes back to the Inquisition. Uh, you know, the Inquisition, of course, was set up to protect the community uh, from the virus of uh, the hate of God. Uh, but the fact of its existence meant that false accusations uh, and people being continuously afraid to express themselves uh, were a very real... Uh, I mean, St. Teresa of Avila was detained by the Inquisition. So uh, it became that's a political I, tool. It became a political tool, but also a, social, a of... social and a cultural tool, mm -hmm. and a petty tool to 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 in, in terms of personality disputes and in petty power situations in municipalities and within religious orders and so forth. So this now this is all far fetched in a way, right? Okay, but to go back to your question, would it be very wise for this Oroctus? to parse this legislation word by word very carefully, the answer is definitely yes. Because the Inquisition, the abuse, the abuses carried on by the, uh, the, the Inquisition were because the general charge of heresy could mean anything to anyone. And this is precisely the criticism that Michael McDool has made a very strong column uh, about this today, but also previously in his contributions in the Shannon and some of his writings, and other members of the Shannon have made it as well, is that the, uh, the legislation is too loose. It doesn't define uh, hatred specifically enough, and it doesn't define gender specifically enough. Instead, it seems to open up possible future definitions of, uh, of, uh, of gender, for, uh, for one thing, to the protection of the law. But the law must be certain. It must be clear to citizens what is permitted and what is not permitted. And it is a reasonable criticism, I think, of, uh, of this law. I think some of the criticisms of it are a bit hysterical, but this particular one that it requires to be certain, it seems to me, is valid. I mean, I would very much of the view we need this legislation. Do we need it exactly as it's currently worded? I think that's a debate we should listen to very attentively. I want to play a, another clip. This is from Senator Pauline O'Reilly of the Green Party. 
you will see throughout our constitution, yes, you have rights, but they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. And if your views on other people's identities go to make their lives unsafe, insecure, and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, then I believe that it is our job as legislators to restrict those freedoms for the common good. Because you cannot do and say whatever you like in our society, a society governed by laws. So I think that clip sort of illustrates some of the points that uh, that um, Jared and Pat were making there, Jen. And it would cause me some concern because if you parse some of what was said there by the senator and you say, you know, among other things, she says that views that cause discomfort for people, if you strip out some of the other words, that's what she says, it, you know, should be regulated. Should views that cause discomfort to some people be, reg be regulated or penalised? No, I don't think so. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm just not sure that that is in keeping with what's actually in the legislation because... Um, what the Department of Justice has said is that people can have, I think the phrase they use were shocking opinions, um, whether that be online, whether that be as part of culture wars or whatever. Um, but that's not what was what's envisaged in this legislation. Because this was one of the criticisms by Paul Murphy and the Dáil that, that the legislation is so structured that if you hold or have perhaps written on your laptop certain material, uh, you don't need to have disseminated it or communicated to anybody else. You, uh, If you are in possession of it, you might, you might be prosecuted uh, and it's up to you, the onus is on you, the producer of that material, to prove that you weren't going to disseminate it. So that's a kind of inversion of the usual the usual way that the law works. Yeah, and I guess this is where people kind of have, there's, there's been kind of, I think, some valid criticisms along the way that this is effectively steering into thought police territory. Um, but like I said, that in as far as I can see is not the intention or the remit of the bill. And actually, that's probably where it is important, um, like Pat and Jared said, to have uh, a definition. You could have two definitions. You could have uh, uh, one in relation to hate and one in relation to hatred for incitement to hatred. And that, I think, would clear up um, a, a lot of the issues there. And I do think that this is still kind of a vague enough area because, you know, she's a member of the Green Party. And if you have saying that uh, in the Shannon, of course, you're being you're you feel concerned about that. And I heard that I actually hadn't heard that contribution before. And like I said, that's not my understanding of the legislation. Um, but this is precisely why the legislation needs to be clear, because it's very clear. And what what Pauline O'Reilly is talking about there is a view that is increasingly widespread in society mm -hmm. to uh, to outlaw, marginalize or indeed criminalize views that we uh, that we don't like on the basis that they make some people feel uncomfortable or they make some people feel unsafe. And that's classically a subjective the subjective view and the the law needs to be very clear precisely because lots of people believe uh, yeah, believe that those views holding those views should uh, uh, should be a criminal offence that that's that's precisely why the law needs to be clear that that is not a criminal offence what is and perhaps should be a criminal offence is inciting inciting hatred or inciting violence against people. Very few people would dispute that. But the criminalisation of views that may make some people annoyed or feel unsafe for whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason, that is something to, to to cross that line. Seems to me to be well, I think a, it's, a it's very one, it's, very big step to take, it, yeah, which like is why one, the law needs to be certain. That it's, it's one not thing to put out a tweet saying. You know, I don't agree with whatever it may be. It could be a, a culture war in relation to genders. It could be anything like that. It's another thing to tweet and say this person is whatever characteristic. Get them. 
I think they're they're two totally different things. You know, you are inciting hatred against a person there. Mm. Whereas if you're expressing an opinion, you don't agree or whatever. I mean, I not I might not find that opinion particularly, you know, appealing. Um, but it's the person's right to have it. Um, and I think, yeah, if, if there was a, a, a definition of hate and also incitement to hate or two separate definitions, maybe, then you would have, I guess, less ambiguity around Let, stuff like let's that. Let's turn to the other point of criticism, which was kind of implicit again in what Michael McDougall was saying and which, and which as Pat says, uh, Michael McDougall actually writes about in his column in the Irish Times. And he talks about the protected characteristics and the broadening. These, these are the things which, which can be defined as you're a subject of hate because of your religious belief, because of your, because of your racial background, you're a member of the travelling community, your sexual orientation or indeed your gender and, and a couple of other ones. And the wording there includes, in, in the words of Michael McDougall, the undefined term trans transgender and an open-ended definition, defined category of a gender other than those of male or female. And he points out that there is no other mention of these identities in any other part of legis- legislation up until now. Yeah, and it does and, seem... And even the actual transgender, or the, 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 the transgender legislation, which allows people to doesn't, legally change doesn't their gender, those categories. Is, is, on a, uh, is on a binary so basis. So now, uh, it, it does seem to me that one could absolutely legitimately have a debate about we do need to change these categories in recognition of changes in society and to give people their, their rights and, and to protect them. But we haven't done that. And is this the right place to start doing that? Or is this that not Well, if you're going to criminalise, if you're going to criminalise the expression of views about a certain class of people, mm. then it seems to me that you have to define what that class of people is. Uh, or what. So I agree with Pat. The problem is do not think that these definitions will be easily arrived at or, or, or broadly, necessarily broadly accepted when they are. So I think this is a big challenge for us as a society and for very wise legal drafts, women and men, uh, as, as, as experts, because it's a whole range of issues that are very new that leaves a lot of people still scratching their heads. How do you go from a benign live and let live attitude in general to consideration of very specific issues that are relatively new, that they're defined carefully in legislation in a way that are understandable. Because if this thing gets too complex, how do we, the citizens, adhere to something that has so many subsections to it? Uh, it's just baffling and bewildering. So has, has the process let us down a bit here, both in terms of the, the drafting of the legislation and the degree of consideration it had in the doll before it got to the Senate? I'm not sure. I, I think, I, I, no, I won't say that. I'd say something else. I think the process has met a complexity uh, that is unprecedented. But this and is perhaps, the sausage per, This is and, the job of legislators. And, and, per, and perhaps underestimated the complexity. I wonder what the president thinks. Yeah. Perhaps we should ask him. Yeah, would they be an That's expert? today's job. Yes. Read the Irish Times tomorrow. <laughs> um, is this likely to be a problem for the government passed or they just push it through ultimately in the end or I mean we're glad that we're going to get various amendments or might they actually accept some of those amendments and approve the legislation which of course is the way in which these things no, are well, that's really the way, supposed that's to work. That's the way it is supposed to work uh, isn't it? In practice what often happens is that a lengthy debate takes place and then the government whips through uh, whips its Doesn't always happen. Members through the lobby. I suspect that they might be open to uh, to discussion uh, on this anyway. I don't, any conversations that I've had with people uh, around government actually betray a fair amount of ignorance as to, and I mean that the original sense of the word rather than uh, the prejudicial one. But Is that part of the problem maybe? I think people just don't, haven't really considered uh, this. And Society at large 
uh, is an unfair degree of ignorance about a lot of these uh, emerging issues. It's not that there are new issues or there haven't always been people in these situations, but the public discussion and spotlight on is relatively new. And a lot of people are behind the curve in terms of their own consideration and I think politics and to a degree this legislation reflects. Well, that. The, what are we possibly remiss there as well, Dan, as well? Because, well, the, the, I mean, it's, it's up to the media, isn't it, to ventilate and to inform the public? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yeah, but actually uh, in relation to the public side of it, you know, there was a public consultation I think there were around, there was a couple of thousand, I think around mm. 3,000 submissions. I didn't go through them all, but I went through a lot of them. And actually the way they were um, uh, presented by the department was this kind of Excel spreadsheet. So you could easily go down very quickly, see what different people were saying. And there was huge opposition to it because people felt this was the thought police and there were phrases that came up like Orwellian and, uh, and things like that. And I think that public consultation came at a time when there was even more vagueness about the law than perhaps, as we're saying, there is now. And people were just hearing this about if you think this and you say this online, you're going to be criminalised, even though that's not the case, in as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. Um, People can often just dive into their silos on whatever side of an argument as well. It doesn't help when Donald Trump Jr. and Elon Musk get involved in the debate. Exactly, and people will make up their mind on that. And actually what might be useful is if the government presented people with evidence from other jurisdictions that have very similar uh, laws, such as in the UK, that show that actually... It's a proportionate law over there and the um, conviction rate uh, in terms of hate crime broadly matches the conviction rate in terms of, you know, normal crime, for want of a better phrase. You know, points like that or statistics like that might actually help people to get their head around it, but it's kind of missing a little bit at the moment. I mean, I feel I very much want the principles of this legislation based upon what I'm listening to as a citizen. I think I want to hear a bit more about how the practicalities would work out as well. Mm. Last word, Pat. Yeah, I'd be really interested to say we'd be paying e- even closer attention than usual to the Shannon debate, which uh, takes place uh, today. And are you um, implying we don't pay enough sufficient attention to the Shannon? Debate? Never imply that, uh, Hugh, as uh, as you know. But um, uh, I think this is something, perhaps for obvious reasons, that people have only just uh, woken up to. And it's actually, it is what uh, our, our great cousins across the sea call perhaps a teachable moment in our legislative process. We'll leave it with that appalling cliche. Thanks very much indeed to, uh, to Pat, to Jared, and to Jen. Thanks to our producer Declan Collin, our engineers JJ Vernon. Uh, we'll be back very soon indeed. We'll be back on Friday actually. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>